Like it or not, winter officially arrived at 1.08 this morning. The arrival of winter is marked by an astronomical event known as the winter solstice, the exact moment when the sun reaches its southernmost point over the Earth. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, a celebration of winter. We'll hear about the origins of some of our winter holiday traditions, find out how New York City's wildlife gets through the colder months, and delve into the history of a classic winter icon, the snowman. I had a lot of great success in finding the first documented snowman. That snowman's from 1380. That's all coming up this morning on Cityscape from WFUV. The winter solstice marks the shortest day and the longest night of the year. It's responsible for some of our age-old winter holiday traditions. Joining me on the phone now to talk about them is Tolly Beck. She's a horticulturalist at Lasden Park and Arboretum in Westchester County. Tolly, welcome to Cityscape. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Today marks the first official day of winter. It's known as winter solstice. Now, the ancients took this a lot more seriously than we do today, correct? Oh, they absolutely did. The winter solstice was a time of kind of trepidation for a number of the ancients. They saw that uh, the trees were now bare and there were no longer crops in the field and they saw that the sun was no longer shining as much as it as it did in summer, and each day the amount of daylight that they were getting was shorter and shorter. So they became rather fearful that what would happen if the sun disappeared altogether. So what did they do? Very often they would rely on customs and uh, of faith of, of hoping that something that they could do that would encourage the sun back into the sky. And one thing that they did was to light bonfires. And the bonfires, of course, provided you know great warmth for them, but the bonfires were lit with the intent of encouraging the sun uh, to return to the sky. The belief was if you could keep a bonfire uh, going for at least 12 hours, it would ensure good luck for the coming year as well. And they would often use very hard wood, such as oak, which was also a sacred wood uh, in much of Europe, as the basis for this bonfire, and uh, that often uh, many people believe was the beginning of the Yule Log in England. What about the plants, Tolly, that are part of our traditions today, like holly and ivy and mistletoe? Are they rooted in winter solstice as well? They definitely are. Uh, The evergreen plants, such as holly and ivy, were particularly important to the ancients. They looked at these plants uh, as rather sacred and mystical because they were green and beautiful at a time of year where everything else had either died or was in a, a state of dying back. And here was this beautiful green growth that was really making the surroundings beautiful in their homes as well as in the woods. So they definitely uh, felt that those plants had a a very important part in the winter solstice and would bring good luck. Mistletoe, too, was a uh, plant that was considered very sacred because it grew on that oak tree, which uh, was the sacred tree. Did they kiss under the mistletoe at that point in time? I think that was a tradition that developed somewhat later. To them, uh, mistletoe was a very sacred plant. It was 
a uh, plant that had connections. Uh, actually, they, they felt it had life-giving powers and that it uh, grew actually from the sky on the limbs of the sacred oak. Are there any other holiday traditions that we enjoy today that can be traced back to those early days? The decorating of the pine trees in the groves uh, is something that could be traced back to our decoration of the Christmas tree. I know there are lots of different stories about where that tradition came from, but uh, certainly the Druids did decorate pine trees as part of their winter solstice celebrations, and uh, that could very well have been the beginning of that particular uh, Christmas tradition. Tolly Beck, thanks so much for your time. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much. Tolly Beck is a horticulturalist at Lasden Park and Arboretum in Westchester County. When the winter wind blows cold upon my window And the mood I'm in is darker than the deep blue sea I'm remembering some time that we had long ago Seems you and me long before the winter wind All along the lane They've plowed a way for us to go Through the ice and the snow And the chill in the air And if I should go Far from the wood smoke through the cold Would you give me your warm hand to hold In the winter wind? If you live in New York City, you don't have much of a choice this time of year. You can either tough out the cold or head somewhere warm. That goes for people and animals. Next on Cityscape, we learn how the city's wildlife deals with winter. My name is Howard Kreft. I'm a sergeant with the Urban Park Rangers for the City of New York Department of Parks and Recreation, and I'm based in Forest Park, Queens. New York City is home to a wide variety of wildlife A lot of people associate it with pigeons and rats, which we certainly have plenty of those, but we also have animals like the eastern gray squirrel, the northern cardinal. We have coyote that come from time to time in New York City parks. So we run the whole spectrum of wildlife. Some creatures tough out the winter months foraging for food, and others go into a state of dormancy, commonly known as hibernation. The ground squirrel or chipmunk, for example, an eastern chipmunk, they're going to go into what's referred to as true hibernation, a really deep sleep where their body temperature drops drastically from somewhere in the 90-degree Fahrenheit range to somewhere in the 30-degree Fahrenheit range. Other animals go into a kind of a lesser state of hibernation referred to as torpor. Some animals go, let's say, horizontal into a tree into a a cavity, a natural hole that already existed, and they'll just keep going further and further into it and down. The house sparrow is interesting because this is one of these birds that has adapted the strategy of huddling together. So you might find a group of house sparrows huddling together in a nest box or in a tree cavity. And so it's one of many survival strategies that birds have adapted. Sounds of nature during the winter, I'm thinking of Alley Pond Park at this point, you might hear a great horn owl hooting the male to the female. You get those private moments that you might not have, let's say, in the peak of summer in a busy park. 
Howard Kraft is an urban park ranger in Queens. Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In case you're just tuning in, we're ushering in winter this morning. Today is actually winter solstice, the first official day of winter. Next on Cityscape, we'll delve into the history of a classic winter icon, the snowman. Happy birthday! Frosty the snowman was a jolly happy soul. With a corncup pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. Frosty is undoubtedly the most famous snowman of them all, hands down. But by no means was he the first snowman on the scene. New York City writer Bob Eckstein introduces readers to the snowman's eclectic and oftentimes dark past in a new book called The History of the Snowman. Bob, thanks for coming in. Thank you. What made you want to tackle the subject of the snowman? I am. decided a few years ago, about six years ago, that I wanted to do a book on a mystery, one of life's unsolved mysteries. It could have been who made the first joke or who made the first sandwich. But um, I picked the snowman partly because I had seen this movie, um, Tim Burton's Batman, and it kind of influenced me. Not that I'm a big fan of the movie, but I love the idea of turning this character upside down on its head. Up until then, everyone perceived Batman as sort of this white bread, fluffy character that was kid-friendly on TV. And then all of a sudden, Tim Burton cast Michael Keaton in the role, and he created this dark world. And I I thought the snowman had that potential, too. I thought that it would be interesting to take it seriously as an old form of folk art and to see what we could find and to give the snowman sort of a heart and a soul. How can you research something that melts? Initially, I was wondering at myself, where was I going to find the fossils? Where was I going to find the clues to its past? And the first thing I did was I started collecting items on eBay and flea markets. Of course, eventually, I contacted uh, experts in cultural history, and went to Europe, met with people who are um, experts in art, and really sat down and tried to piece together the the whole puzzle. And, and that is possible. And this book could not have been done, I think, years ago before the internet. I made that initial contact with all these experts, and uh, some of them were famous people in their fields. And I had the real lucky uh, chance to have them all cooperate. Well, Bob, here's the million-dollar question. Were you able to determine where and when the first snowman was created? Not really. But I had a lot of great success in finding the first documented snowman, which in itself was a really big revelation. That snowman's from 1380, and it's an illuminated manuscript. And that in itself is really exciting because it first proves how 
far back this activity goes. And the stories behind why there is a snowman in the Illuminated Manuscript are also very revealing, very shocking, and just makes for a really complex history of the snowman. And the depiction of that snowman had a level of anti-Semitism to it, right? Exactly. Unfortunately, it's really sad that that is the first snowman. One of the appeals of the snowman initially was that I would be creating a book that was non-denominational. And it's sort of ironic that now I go all the way back in its history and I find like one of the earliest snowmans and the very first one in print is actually this sort of hatred toward religion and it's anti-Semitic. We found that, first of all, it was a Jewish snowman because it was wearing a strange hat that's used as a symbol in a lot of artwork at that time when they're trying to mock Jews. Now, why is a snowman next to a very solemn passage about the crucifixion of Christ, no less? Well, that goes back to sort of a a trend back there where there was like any serious topic, they would sometimes mock it or try to deal with it by doing this bizarre, grotesque contrast using maybe an image or it could be even in literature, it would be maybe a passage. And they would just go overboard in the opposite. And in this case, they just did something ridiculous. I did go to a couple of experts I met in person with the leading expert on this subject which is Professor Herman Play at the University of Amsterdam. And he had written a book called Miracle of 1511, which in itself is an amazing story about snowmen. And he was able to confirm to me my suspicions that this was an anti-Semitic gesture. This illustration was something that was sort of, you know, born out of hatred. You mentioned the miracle of 1511. This took place in Brussels. Now, when I think of a snowman, Bob, I think of something that is cute and personable, perhaps. But these snowmen had a career in porn. What's that all about? It seems that snowmen were um, an early form of pornography at that time, as well as an early form of political commentary. The miracle of 1511 refers to a snowstorm in Brussels where everyone came out and started making snow scenes. Not just snowmen, but they were actually giving messages. They were creating scenes that were giving a message to either the local government or maybe the church, or in some cases just a way of handling this confusing thing called sexual urges. It's new to people in the sense that they really didn't quite understand that sort of anxiety. And this was, in a sense, sort of like a Woodstock for them back then. Uh, the snow came down, and it was an opportunity for them to express themselves. Instead of just putting a carrot in the face and putting a top hat, snowmen did have some kind of message they were conveying. They were, at times, very sexual, and right in public view of everyone to see. Why did they blow snowmen up in Switzerland? Now, that's a national holiday uh, that sort of celebrates the ending of winter, they make the snowman out of this very highly flammable material with straw and paper mache. And then they stuff dynamite up his back and they bring him on a car and parade him through the town. And it's a parade. There's other people in the parade, all the workers and stuff celebrate sort of the closing of shop. That's the name of the, the holiday is called the Six Bells Ringing, which sort of signifies the end of the workday. And women throw sausages at the men who are parading. And eventually the snowman is uh, schlepped through the town to his big mountain. And things get worse before they get better. They, they light this big pile and eventually the snowman explodes. Poor Frosty. I can't imagine blowing Frosty up. But hey, you know, it's tradition, I guess, there. 
over there you have to embrace the idea of exploding your snowman. You ask in the book, was the first snowman in America made in Schenectady on the eve of one of the bloodiest days in early American history? And what's the answer there? Well, that's up for debate. I try to reveal what would the answer be. Uh, my conclusion about the story, which is that there were guards in front of this fort that was supposed to be protecting the, the whole town. They went in, they had some drinks at a pub or something, and were delinquent in their, their role of protecting the town and left instead these snowmen to mock the authority who told them to stay out there during the snowstorm. There is some talk that this is a rumor, and I do come up with a conclusion in my book about how I feel it's it was used as a device to sort of wash the blood off the hands of certain parties involved in that incident. There is a village in Japan that you write about in the book, and this village builds some 2,000 snowmen in a single week? There's actually a moment in which there's more snowmen in the village than there are people. Unbelievable. I've told people, if everyone made a snowman, everyone just went out and made snowmen, just look really cool. <laughs> and people always say, what's the future for the snowman? Well, just making snowmen outside is just like a really cool thing. Yeah, well, I guess you have to ask, what's the future with global warming? Um, I think that snowman's going to become like a poster boy in the same way like the, the duck-billed platypus became like a poster boy for uh, endangered species. And with the snowman, it's going to be the same thing. It's going to be a lot of like responsibility and it's going to be a, kind of a big couple of years for him as people start keep on focusing on that. Talking about the snowman as a poster boy, the snowman has been used in advertising for years and years. What a pitchman he is. The darling of Madison Avenue. He's um, a natural. I mean, as advertisers realize that an icon can move products, and people started developing icons, they quickly learned that if the image was friendly and sort of someone they could relate to, the customer can see themselves as this friendly, round, uh, jolly guy, that the products would even have more of a connection. So the snowman became really quickly a, a very popular icon. He was royalty-free, and you could put him in any position. So people in the last 11th hour couldn't come up with an idea. You roll in the snowman. And um, as you could see, there's a lot of, actually a lot of, Bastards of the snowman in advertising, too, in like the Pillsbury Doughboy, the Maytag Repairman, the Michelin Man. They're all sort of like, I think, a poor man snowman. He was used to sell everything. He would even sell his own flesh and blood. There's a, there was a product in the 1940s called canned ice. People used it to refrigerate stuff. And he even did an ad for asbestos, which kind of pained me to see that. But it just shows that he had no qualms about making a quick buck. I was surprised to learn, and I'm sure others will be too, that the snowman was once, and how can I put this delicately, Bob? He was a lush. <laughs> That's the Dean Morning years in my book, where I discuss this period as troubled times in which he was always seen like drunk or womanizing. And I, I sort of have a progression of events that led to that, which is around the turn of the century, there was always postcards showing him getting abused. You know, whether he was getting uh, stabbed by a broom or run over by a, a toboggan, pelted with snowballs. Why? He was seen as an authoritative figure. Sometimes the snowman was made to look like a cop or your neighbor. It's a great way of you know letting off steam, sort of a punchy Judy. And so he got he got abused as people used him to sort of uh, 
you know, poor man, like at the bus stop, getting sloshed with water. And so um, he was constantly getting abused like that. And I think that kind of led him to the bottle. And uh, things escalated from there. He sort of started becoming more of like a W.C. Fields character. Started building confidence, starting it, starting to build confidence and starting to get more popular with the ladies. And um, actually, I think that his 12-step program included somewhere doing lucrative uh, liquor accounts and advertising because it, right after that Dean Martin period, he wound up being like a real big pitchman for hard liquor and beer ads. Who knew? <laughs> it's in the book, The History of the Snowman. When did Frosty then come along? It seems that his reputation changed with Frosty, of course. It's a little unfortunate because it, the snowman was a lot more interesting before Frosty came along in 1969. And that's the holiday special that everyone knows. And it's sort of like that song we all know, which to me is a little annoying. I mean, you know, I think has actually been a backlash to that song later when the snowman uh, started being put into uh, roles like slasher movies and became a homicidal killer. But uh, when Frosty came along... It was after a few false starts. There was also a Frosty in 1954. There was a short five-minute film that was, it was really kind of neat. And uh, not many people know of it. It was a little black-and-white short. Um, and then later they sort of punched it up in the 1969 version, which was drawn by Paul Coker Jr. That time they figured they, figured they wanted to do sort of a greeting card look to the special. They wanted to feel more like a greeting card. And unfortunately, they only had one song for the special, which which is why, in my opinion, it's not a role worthy of the snowman. I was hoping it would be a little bit of a meaty role. Um, you know, the Grinch and the, and the Peanuts. I mean, those are real classics that you remember all the songs, and it's a lot more to it. With Frosty, um, you know, before that, there was Rudolph with the snowman played by Burl Ives. And to me, that was cool. I mean, it was classy. They gave him some bling bling, and it was done right. And it's sort of like the Frosty that came out after that kind of undid all that groundwork laid out by Burl Ives. Come on, Bob. There must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found. No? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I had hoped for bigger things for the snowman. And, you know, it might happen. I mean, they keep on trying to give him a vehicle. They they put him in this movie called Jack Frost. It was a, such a horrible idea. There was, were two movies with the title Jack Frost. and right. one, he was a serial killer. And then the other, he was a dad who died and came back as a snowman. Yeah, but you know, the, in the Jack Frost that you're talking about, the second one, he comes back to life as a snowman. So how does he tell this kid and his wife? He calls him on the telephone. I mean, give me a break. I mean, This is the 21st century. I don't know. <laughs> the, the beginnings of the snowman in cinema started so promising. He began in silent movies, and then he did a movie, a little movie, a little thing we like to call Citizen Kane. And he was even in the most pivotal scene in that movie. It's when the, the kid gets given away. And it's just a shame that now, look, we look back and we, we see, you know, Jack Frost the killer. There's actually a sequel to that. You know, he's icing, he's dicing. And, you know, well, hopefully things will change again because as the global warming issue comes in, I think people will start looking at him in maybe a different light, too. And maybe even my book will help with that, too, and say, you know, when you see a snowman out there now, it's maybe something different. Are kids still making snowmen in the way that I did and perhaps you did as a child, or has the evolution of computer games changed that? 
All that stuff has given them a short attention span, so there's the danger that they're not making as many snowmen. The snowmen, though, can be the same. As a matter of fact, when I'm doing research, I mean, how am I to know that I'm looking at a snowman? It's not maybe a snowman from prehistoric time, and it hasn't melted. So I think that there is that same common denominator that the snowman could have been made the same as our ancestors. And kids today are making the same snowman that we made, but... What's the threat to this is these snowman kits and all these other things, which they, they're not letting kids run around the house looking for whatever it is. I mean, you don't have to use carrots. You can use a dead battery. You can use some utensils. And to me, that's kind of cool. It's like sort of a sense of self-expression. And instead now, there's an encouragement to make all the snowmen look the same, whether you're inflating a 12-foot snowman or you're using a kit when they're telling you that every snowman is going to wear the same scarf. And the other point they want to make about children making snowmen is that um, you want the kids to go out with mittens so they can't use their cell phones and the keyboards. The one thing you want to try to do is introduce kids to tactile activities. And that's something I think that they're doing less and less of. There are a few books out there that feature snowmen that are aimed at adults. Most of them are for children. Yours is one of the few. I think that's true. Um, You have the snowman's in a book for adults as a drug dealer. Or he's for the children. But I don't know if many people have really put together all the different stories. And I noticed some of the stories in the book have not been told before. So I'm excited about that. And again, I think it's the first time the snowman making is seen as a folk art. I think the book tries also to explain that similar to cave paintings or making um, figures out of clay, it it was there for the cavemen, this, this art supply, to to make some kind of um, replica of themselves, something that man has always wanted to do. It's I think it's a natural instinct for man to want to depict himself. And the other thing that I think man has always wanted to do is put one thing on top of another thing, sort of a trend. And, well, the snowman just lends itself to that too. We here in the U.S. usually put three snowballs on top of each other to make a snowman, but in Japan they only use two. Yeah, it's really funny. It's it That's because... There's a two-ball figure that's a good luck charm, and so the snowman is also in line with that. And they not only make just two balls for their snowman, but they put lit candles in the stomach. And then at night, you go through the town, and there's these beautiful scenes like snowmen with candles in them, and they're all different colors, and it's really cool. I think if you do that, then they wouldn't be there in the morning with lit candles in the belly of a snowman. I don't know how they do it. But um, I know that they're also thinking about breaking the world record for the largest snowman. What is the largest snowman ever created? Well, that would be the snowman called Angus King of the Mountain in Bethel, Maine. They made it in 1999. And it's called Angus King because that was the name of the mayor who actually did this thing. This, this town wanted to do some kind of tourist thing, and they came up with this idea. And The snowman was built with cranes and truckloads of snow, required work permits and Teamsters. How big was it? It was 11 stories. They made the face with five large tires. The eyes were four-foot reefs. They had these big trees for arms on the side. And the nose was really interesting. The nose was a papier-mâché nose made by a kindergarten school. And they painted it orange by everyone hand-painting it. All the kids put their own handprint on the, on the nose. But what you wind up with is this 11-foot story snowman that looks very efficient. It's the sort of snowman you could imagine Donald Trump making. You've also recently learned that Norway is talking about building what would be the world's first 
snowman-themed amusement park, right? Again, it's all about tourism. They're really jealous of a neighboring town right across the border. That's uh, Santa Claus's village. And this town in Norway has been scheming now what they're going to do. They decided they're going to go the snowman route. They were actually very competitive. It's very funny how they're saying they're going to just kick the butt of this other town and have all the tourism that the other town is enjoying now. You write in the book that the word snowman means totally different things to totally different groups of people. How do definitions of the word differ? Well, actually, we've been guilty all this whole show of using the word snowman. It probably should be snow person. Uh, actually, school books change it to snow person. They're, they've banned the word snowman in a lot of school books. What do you think about that? Oh, it's crazy. (laughs) Um, You know, more than anything else, at the end of the day, it's a snowman book. I want to have fun and stuff. And, you know, of course it pains me that people take things so serious. Going back to how the word has been used in the past, the snowman's been used as slang for a couple of things. I know uh, decades ago it was derogatory toward whites. In Japan, it's derogatory toward politicians who they consider being, you know, lying politicians. They call them a snowman. And on the golf courses, it's uh, what hackers try to avoid. Uh, an eight is a snowman and uh, not good for anyone. <laughs> well, the book is The History of the Snowman. It's out now from Simon Spotlight Entertainment. Bob Eckstein, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. If you're not much of a winter person, we leave you with this thought. Spring is not all that far away. It arrives on March 20th at 1.48 a.m. If you have any thoughts for a spring show, let us know at cityscape at wfuv.org. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks for listening. 